0: I invite you to take uh, a copy of the Bible and turn to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to use one of those black hardcover ESV Bibles uh, that should be lying nearby, and the text is on page 211 in that Bible. I can't promise you that all every Bible is on page 211, but in that particular edition of the Bible, Page 211 is where you'll find the beginning of 1 Samuel. So we just started last Sunday uh, a study, a series uh, in this book, this Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. I don't know how long we'll be in 1 Samuel, just we'll let the text decide that for us as we walk through it. But just a little bit of a reminder of an overview of where we find ourselves in the story of God's people in the Old Testament. God has birthed the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt. He's led them out of slavery under the leadership of Moses, led them to Mount Sinai where he gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, kind of summarizing the moral code and requirements of his people and and established covenant with them in that way. He's led them In 40 years of wilderness wandering because they did not have the faith to follow through with the command to go into the promised land in Canaan and take control of it. And so that period has passed and now the people of Israel have been led into the land of Canaan under Joshua's leadership. And uh, they've been in this land now for a few hundred years and... Instead of worshiping God and representing him and living holy, set-apart lives in the world, they've just followed step for step with their culture, with the world around them. They've just embraced every worldly attitude and every pagan god, and they've intermarried with these false god-worshippers. And so the people of God in the promised land have largely forgotten Their covenant with God and have abandoned him time and time again and so the period of the judges where God raises up these particular leaders for the people of Israel um, is found in the book of Judges and Ruth and it is a godless chaotic period of time for the people of Israel. The slogan in that day was in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes which is not the way that the people of God are supposed to behave or believe or live. They're supposed to do what God says. They're supposed to believe what God instructs and to live according to his command. And in fact God's promised his people if you will live in obedience, you will be showered with blessing and kindness and uh, favor and grace. And yet they've time and time again wandered away from That covenant. So the book of 1 Samuel opens with a barren woman named Hannah. We looked at a bit of her story last week and she is destitute and she is uh, eagerly desiring to have children and specifically sons because they needed sons to help tend the land and provide for the family and to care for His mother in her old age, uh, and to fight Israel's battles when that time came, and to bring honor upon the family. And so she needed, in her mind, she needed a son. And so she pleaded with God. We have this beautiful picture of her desperate prayers to God in the beginning of uh, chapter or middle of, of chapter one that we looked at last week. And as she brings her burden. And bears her soul to God we find God responds with incredible kindness and grace. Look at verse twenty, or verse nineteen and twenty of first Samuel chapter one. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah, that's Hannah's husband, knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And so God has kindly, mercifully responded to Hannah's pleas with a child, the child Samuel, who, whose name is on this book and whose story encompasses the first eight or so chapters of, uh, of this book. So it ended there last week with God remembering Hannah, which again doesn't mean that he had forgotten about her and a notification popped up and he went, oops, I got to go bless Hannah. It means he was faithful to his covenant. He was faithful in his relationship to her to bring about uh, her request. And so it stopped there. And so now we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 21, where essentially we're going to see Hannah fulfilling her vow. Because her vow was, if you'll give me a son, he's yours. I'll give him to Yahweh. That's God's name. I'll give him to God all the days of his life, if you'll just give me this son. No razor shall touch his head, she had said. Consecrating him as a Nazarite to the service of God for his lifetime. And so in these verses, Hannah will fulfill her vow. And I want you to pay attention to the manner in which she fulfills the vow. The attitude, the the heart posture that she displays as she carries through with giving her son to the Lord. Look with me at the beginning of verse 21, and I'll read through verse 28. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah, of flour. And a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. We're going to pause there and then we're going to continue in just a few minutes into uh, the first uh, 11 verses of chapter 2. Where we're going to see Hannah praying again, this time in response to uh, the the fulfilling of her vow of, of giving Samuel over to the Lord. So just a few little details about how this uh, goes down, uh, beginning in verse 21. So uh, it's that time of year now for uh, the Israelites to make their pilgrimage to Shiloh, which is where uh, the the temple is set up and, and the priests minister, and that's where people had to go to make their sacrifices during this period of Israel's life. And so it's time for them to go for the yearly sacrifice. But Hannah says, I need to nurse my baby. And when he's finished nursing, I will take him and give him to God, right? And so uh, in, that, uh, in that culture, it could have been up to three years uh, of, of that period of time. And so his infancy and early toddler years uh, were, would have been at home with Hannah. And so uh, Elkanah says, that's good, but may the Lord make good his word. May the Lord establish his word, which is kind of an interesting thing for him to say, because Hannah is the one with a vow to fulfill, not God, right? God didn't owe Hannah anything. In fact, it was Hannah who vowed a vow to God back in verse 11 and said, if you will look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and give me a son, I will give him to you, right? He he will be yours forever. So the one with a vow to fulfill is Hannah and not God. So it seems a little interesting that he would say, may God fulfill his word. And in fact, the child has already been born. Right, So I mean, she's nursing this child, uh, and so uh, as a gift of grace, God's given her this, this son. And so something larger than Hannah's own story, I think, must be in view here. I don't know how aware Elkanah is of all of these dynamics, but it seems that when he says, may the Lord establish his word, he's not necessarily saying, may God fulfill his personal promise to you, but more, may God bless his covenant people. May God honor the covenant that he has with the people of Israel. And so I think there's even a basic awareness that Samuel is a special child. I mean, he's been given to them by miracle, by God's uh, kind intervention and and, and interaction. And so Elkanah says, uh, may God establish his people, right? The, The promise to deliver them, to lead them, to save them. And I think that's interesting because this widening of the lens, right? It kind of zooms out from Hannah's story uh, to see the story of Israel. It's the general shape of Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. It starts small, starts personal, and then it, it widens. It gets bigger. And so we'll see that in just a minute. So at any rate, when Samuel is weaned, probably about three years later, Hannah makes the journey to Shiloh, and she brings resources for sacrifice, she knows uh, the, the, the commands. She knows the way that worship goes, that you bring a, a bull to sacrifice. And in fact, it could be that uh, it, the, the ESV says that she brought a three-year-old bull, and it might better be translated from the Hebrew as three bulls. Um, at any rate, she brings enough and probably more than enough uh, for sacrifice, along with this ephah, a flower, which would have been the right amount uh, for a cereal offering to go along with these three sacrifices. And so she goes now with Samuel and with these bulls up to Shiloh. Samuel's probably about three years old. And they go to Shiloh, and they sta- she stands before Eli, the priest. And she reminds Eli of the scene three years ago where she was crying out to God and praying demonstratively and with, she said, vexation and anxiety. I was pouring out my distresses to the Lord. And Eli mistook her for a drunk. Put your wine away from you. How long will you go on being drunk? And she said, no, no, no. I'm not drunk. I'm, I'm pleading with God, right? And so she reminds him of that. I am the woman that you saw praying here those three years ago and mistook for a drunken woman. And this is the child For whom I prayed. And she points to the grace and kindness of God. And she invites Eli essentially to to, to rejoice and to worship God along with her. This is the child that I was praying for. Because at the end of that conversation, three years prior, Eli had said, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she uses that exact language when she appears to Eli, she says, this is the child. God granted me my petition that I made to him, echoing Eli's own words back to him. And so Hannah brings the child to Eli, the priest, and she makes sacrifice of this bull to worship God. And then she makes good on her vow and she dedicates him to the Lord. She says he has lent to the Lord, and that means dedicated made over to yahweh right i 've taken him, and i 've entrusted him to yahweh i 've given him to God as long as he lives, he is made over to God and it 's easy to read that and go, well, of course she did that because she prayed that she would do that you know if God, if you 'll give me a son i 'll give him back to you, and so of course, God gave her son, so duh there she is at the at the temple with the priest, giving the son. But the weight of that act should not be missed. The weight of the giving over of a son to God for the rest of his life is no small thing. And we can immediately connect with the the sort of emotional personal connections between parent and child, mother and child, especially child that has just been nursing uh, and has just been weaned um, the 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 pain of of giving up this child, giving over this child, but she 's giving up more than just emotional fulfillment right it 's more than just uh, you know childhood photo albums and holiday baking and trips to Disney World and things like that, that she's giving up. Not that any of that existed back then, but you get the point. She is relinquishing custody of her son to the Lord. She is saying, he's yours, and I'm going to go back home to Ramah, and he's going to live here in Shiloh, and that's the way it's going to be for as long as he lives. It's, It's an enormous sacrifice. And if you think about it, back to her situation as a barren woman uh, in chapter 1, all of the things that, that made her barrenness such a burden are going to be true again, right? So he will not work the fields. He will not care for her in her old age because he won't be there to do that. He will not fight Israel's battles and gain family honor for her because he's going to be in a temple serving God as a priest. All the reasons that she was destitute in her barrenness in chapter one are still true once she gives Samuel over to the Lord. And so you think, this has got to be hard to make an understatement, but it must be painful and bitter and you would expect Hannah to be woefully, slowly dragging as she... Give Samuel, well, I I said I'd do it, and so I guess I've got to follow through, right? It begs the question, why is she willing to do this? Why is she willing to give up her son? Is Is this a case of, like, making a promise to God in desperation? God, if you'll get me out of this situation, I will never, you know, fill in the blank. And then... The situation gets better, and you go, whoo, glad that's over, and you totally forget about that promise, and you're back to exactly what you were doing before. Is this, is this that where she's like, God, if you'll if you give me a kid, I'll, I'll just give him to you. It'll be yours. And then she has a son, and now she's like, ah, snap. Now I've got to go fulfill this vow. I've got to give him up. You expect something like that. She's taken Samuel to Shiloh, she's presented him to Eli, she's dedicated him to God's service, so she's fulfilled the vow, but did she do it hesitantly, begrudgingly? You might expect that. But when we consider Hannah's prayer in chapter 2 that we're about to read, we discover, to our surprise, this is not the case at all. In fact, we see that Hannah is not just willing, but exuberant. To give her long-awaited son to the Lord. Why? What makes her willing and glad to to give her son to the Lord? Well, let's listen to her prayer in chapter two, verses one through ten, with that question in mind. So, I'm going to read to you, beginning in chapter two, verse one, and be thinking of that. What is it that we see in this prayer that gives us a clue? To what makes Hannah willing to make this bold sacrifice, this costly gift, beginning in chapter two, verse one. And Hannah prayed and said, "My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord." For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven. But she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is not the same kind of prayer that we saw in chapter one, is it? Her prayers in chapter one were marked by desperation, by anxiety and vexation and distress and sorrow, such that Eli thought she was drunk. This prayer is a different Hannah. This prayer comes from a different place. It's not the prayer of a woman who is so burdened and broken and sad that she must honor the, co- the, the vow and give her son to the Lord. It's the exuberant, joyful cry of a woman who has seen God. So I think we see three specific things in this prayer. It's three uh, reasons, if you will, that Hannah is so not just willing but glad to give up her son to the Lord. And I think we'll find in these three things something that will be helpful for us, something that will be instructive for the way we know the Lord and live our lives. Number one, she has experienced God's love. Hannah's willing to make this crazy, bold, costly sacrifice of giving her son over to God because she has personally experienced the love of God. Look at verse one. My heart exalts in the Lord. That's, we sometimes confuse that word with, with the word exalt. But to exalt is to rejoice. It's to celebrate, to delight. My heart rejoices, exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Again, that's a weird phrase. You're like, what does that mean? It's a picture of strength. And it, really, it, it well could be like animal imagery. Like imagine a rhino, you know, goring its prey with its horn and then raising it in victory, right? I have triumphed over my enemy. So the raising of the horn is this picture of victory and and strength. And that's what she's experienced in in, in God's love in her life. My horn is exalted. My mouth, she says, my mouth derides my enemies. Possibly Peninnah? The other wife of Elkanah who was bitterly provoking her about her uh, barrenness. Uh, Perhaps Peninnah is in view there. Maybe some others uh, along the way who have been a burden to Hannah. We're not sure. But she says, my mouth derides my enemies. Why? Because I rejoice in your salvation. She says this to God. I rejoice in your salvation. So she sees God's provision of Samuel as sheer grace i think she recognizes i didn't deserve this i didn't have any claim to this god did not owe me this he just in kindness and love and grace gave me the desire of my heart in this and so because she's experienced this this salvation this love she rejoices my heart exalts i'm giving away my son and i am Rejoicing and celebrating and delighting, not in Samuel, but in God. Friend, do you know God's love in this way? Have you seen God's grace at work in your life? Does your personal experience of God motivate obedience to Him? Sacrifice for His sake? We should meditate on the gospel. Think of God's mercy to you in Jesus Christ, his patience with your weakness, his forgiveness of your sins, his answers to your prayers. And let these expressions of God's love for you lead you to obedience and sacrifice for his sake as gifts of gratitude and worship to him. The love of God poured out in our lives ought to motivate us to sacrifice, to give. To obey, And we see that happening in Hannah's life. She's experienced the love of God. And so she's not just willing, but glad to give up her son. Second reason that we see in this prayer that Hannah is willing and glad to give her son to the Lord is that she knows God's character. She knows God's character. In verses 2 through 8, we have this, this lengthy kind of list uh, of, of essential, essentially reversals if you will the way that things used to be God has turned these things on their head she begins by, by pointing out a few attributes or characteristics of God she says in verse 2 there's none holy like the Lord holiness, the holiness of God is his utter uniqueness that's what she means there's none like him he's in a category all his own there is no one like God. There's no one to whom God can be compared. There's no other power or intelligence or whatever that you could say is like, kind of like what God is like. God is utterly holy. He's utterly unique. He's utterly pure and set apart from uh, the, the fallenness of this world. She says that God is a rock. In verse 2, there is no rock like our God. Isn't it good to have something firm to stand on? The old hymn calls Christ the solid rock. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. This solid rock to stand on. She says that he sees and knows all and judges people's actions rightly. Look at that in verse 3. The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. So God sees, God knows, and God judges perfectly, rightly, every time. And she's widened her lens here, because when she says in verse 3, talk no more so proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth, she's clearly addressing some enemy, but she's speaking in a plural Here, verbs and pronouns have now switched to plural verbs and pronouns. She's not speaking to any one individual. So we know this is bigger than just Peninnah or just her own personal story. This is is to the enemies of God, to those who are proud and arrogant and lift themselves up as mighty or as special or as something to be uh, uh, honored. So she's speaking now to people in general of the character of God. And this great reversal, this series of reversals, essentially take the theme of this. God humbles the proud, and he exalts the humble. He humbles the proud, and he exalts the humble. We see this all throughout the book of 1 Samuel. The story of of Samuel as he anoints Saul as the first king and then eventually David after him is full of these reversals of the the humbling of the proud and the exalting of the humble. Samuel himself, right? God has raised up a prophet in Samuel through a barren woman who couldn't bear any children at all. This is God taking what was low and empty and, and unable and bringing... Life and and, and honor and, and, and restoring God's own word to his people. We see proud, imposing Saul take the throne. We'll see that here in several chapters. And eventually plummet in disgrace because he's proud and he's arrogant and he doesn't have regard for God. But then we see small, unimpressive David rise from obscurity to power and honor and prestige, and in fact, to be the recipient of a covenant that someone in his family would reign forever. We'll come to that a little later. So, this theme of God, ex- God humbling the proud and exalting the humble is all throughout the book of 1 Samuel. Let's look at just a few of, uh, of these examples that she gives of these reversals, right? She says that he breaks the bows of the mighty. But the feeble bind on strength, verse four. So those who are trusting in in military power and strength and conquest, God breaks their bows. They come to nothing. But those who are feeble and weak, they find strength. God gives them strength. She says, The self sufficient become poor, and the hungry are fed. Look at verse five. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Now they're out looking. They used to think, I don't need anything. I got everything I need. I got all the bread I want. I could take a bath and bread if I wanted to. And now, I don't know how you do that. It would be kind of weird. And now they're out looking. They're out finding jobs, flipping burgers, because God has lowered them. God has humbled them in their pride. But what does he say about the poor? She's, they're fed. The hungry have been fed and filled. Then she uses an example that's very personal to her. The barren has seven children. And seven is a number in biblical literature that that is symbolic of wholeness or completion. So it doesn't necessarily mean literally that she has seven children, although she will have several more. But that she's been made whole. In her emptiness, in her inability, God has made her whole. But she, with many children, is forlorn, basically abandoned by her children. Verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life even the most basic authority over life and death belongs to God. He creates it. He takes it away. God alone has that right. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low and he exalts. Verse 7, verse 8, the Lord raises the poor to sit with princes. Oh, what good news for poor, needy, broken people that God has his eye on their situation and he lifts them. He raises them to places of honor and strength and dignity. The poor now sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. He humbles the proud. He exalts the humble. And again, this theme will show up throughout the book of 1 Samuel and we'll see it throughout these happenings in Israel's story, we'll, all along we'll see the powerful guiding hand of God's wise providence. We'll see his uncompromising holiness, his unwavering justice, his covenant faithfulness, and his enduring love. So Hannah knows what God is like. She knows his character. And because she knows who he is, and that he can be trusted, and that he's going to do what's right, and that he's got his eye on the needy and the broken, she is willing and glad to give over her son to this God. Let me ask you, do you know God like this? Do you have a high view of God as revealed in Scripture? I think one of the prevailing weaknesses of the church in America these days is a painfully, shamefully low view of God. We like to talk about God as our friend, God as our brother, God as our provider, God as giver, God as the one who blesses us, but we don't like as much to think about God as holy or as just, or as judge, where God is sovereign over the choices and affairs of mankind. We, we don't think about God that way nearly enough, and Hannah has a very exalted view of who God is. Even the power of life and death are in his hands. Do you have a high view of God as he's revealed in his word? Hannah knows that she can trust God with her son because she knows his character. That he's sovereign and he's good. He's sovereign and he's good. Where might you need a lens correction in your view of God? If you struggle to trust him with your life, your belongings, your burdens, your family, your hopes and dreams, maybe it's because your vision of God is too small. Get your eyes on the big God of the Bible and let that vision of his holiness and grace fuel trust and obedience in your life. As we come to know who God is, it will empower and enable obedience and sacrifice and trust of God in our own lives. Hannah is able and glad to give her son to the Lord because she's experienced his love because she knows his character and finally, because she trusts in God's future salvation. She trusts in God's future salvation. Look at verses 9 and 10. She's now looking forward. She's not just saying, here's how God is, how God generally operates. She's looking to the future. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So the first thing to take note of there is that he will preserve his covenant people. That's what it means when she says he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. He's watching where they step. And he's not going to let them veer off the path or step on a landmine, if you will. He's guarding their feet, he's keeping covenant with them. So he will preserve his people. And the other side of that coin is he will judge the wicked. Another thing we don't really like to talk about when it comes to God and people and salvation and life, we like to think God just loves and preserves everybody. But that's not the Bible, that's not the gospel. The gospel is we're all equally under the wrath of a holy God because of our sin. We're all on the same boat and it's sinking. But God in mercy and grace snatches some and guards and preserves them, his covenant people, his faithful ones, as she calls them. And the only basis for which people he's taking from the sinking ship is, has this person trusted in Jesus Christ alone? Is this person aware of his guilt before me and resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ in his sinless life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave? That's it. So the faithful ones that God preserves are the ones who are resting in Christ, who are hiding in him by faith. And so she looks forward. God will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked will be judged. They'll be cut off. They'll be broken to pieces. He will thunder against them. This is not a good place to be. You don't want to be among the ones against whom God thunders in heaven. You want to be hiding in in Christ. And then she finally says, He will give strength to his king. And exalt the horn of his anointed. There's that horn again. She started the prayer with her own horn being exalted, right? God has given strength and victory to me. And now she's looking forward to a coming king. A coming anointed one. By the way, that's the Hebrew word Messiah. There's a coming Messiah whom God will raise in victory and triumph and strength. Who do you think that might be? It's not Saul. It's not even David. It's Jesus. It's the Lord Christ who will come. In the context of First Samuel, God's anointed is King David. Right? We'll meet him in chapter 16. Hannah's faith in God's salvation of his people probably only goes as far as trusting that he will appoint godly leadership for the nation, and that they will be led once again in righteousness, in terms of what Hannah is actually consciously aware of. But as readers of 1 Samuel who live on the AD side of the timeline, we know more of the story than Hannah does. God will make a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one of his descendants would reign as king forever. And that covenant will be fulfilled when the eternal Son of God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of David, born in David's town, Bethlehem. And he came to town with a message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Even David in the power and prosperity that his kingship will bring to Israel would not be the ultimate source of hope and deliverance for God's people. His kingship is simply a placeholder. David just stands in the place as a reminder of the king who is yet to come. And the coming of this king, by the way, would be the most profound reversal that we were talking about earlier from Hannah's Prayer would be the most profound reversal that the world has ever seen. The humbling of the proud and the exalting of the humble. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, we read that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He just gets lower and lower. The eternal Son of God leaves heaven and takes on human nature and form, and he's in a woman's womb growing and developing and then he's born and then he's an infant needing to be cared for it's 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 amazing the son of god humbled himself his entrance into the world was not met with fanfare and festival but with the lowing of cattle he was not greeted by kings and generals but by peasants and shepherds and his life on earth was not one of privilege and ease but one of service and suffering And ultimately, one of sacrifice. As he would carry a cross to Golgotha and hang there for the sins of his people. For your sins and for mine. But the story doesn't stop there. This is the humbling. He's been humbled to to taking on the form of a servant and to being killed and even being killed on a cross in a shameful way. But Philippians 2 continues. Therefore, that is in light of the humbling of Jesus God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father every knee will bow every tongue will confess that day is coming There will be a day when everyone recognizes Jesus is king. Jesus is the anointed of God. Jesus has, God has raised the horn of his Messiah, of Jesus Christ. But for many it will be too late. For many he will have come as judge. And only those who are found resting in Christ We'll be safe on that day. Christian, what burdens are you carrying? What hopes are you clinging desperately to because you doubt that God will guard the feet of his faithful ones? Do you believe that, you know, in the end, I just have to take care of myself because you're not sure that God will really come through? Hannah knew that God would bring salvation to his people. And that confidence enabled her to gladly give over to him the best earthly hope she had for security and a future. Is there something in your life that you need to let go of in faith that he will preserve you in Christ? If you're not a Christian or you're not sure, I need to ask, are you trusting in the salvation that God has provided through Jesus Christ? Are you confident that your sins have been forgiven, that you've been declared clean before God, and that he welcomes you as his child today and forever? If that doesn't describe you, you could make that decision today to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. You could begin a relationship with God today by confessing to him the guilt of your sin asking him to forgive you, and inviting him to become the lord of your life. Essentially, crowning him king. In early 2003, Karen Watson resigned her job, sold her house, her car, her other possessions, and placed everything she owned into a duffel bag. In March of that year, she set off with that duffel bag for Iraq following God's call to preach Christ as a missionary there. When she left, she left a two-page letter with her pastor, which was only to be read in the event of her death. Well, a year later, the letter was opened. Karen and three other ministry workers in Iraq had been killed. In the letter that she left for her loved ones, she made it very clear that she had counted the cost and going to Iraq with the gospel. In all capital handwritten letters, she had written, There are no regrets. What makes a woman sell all that she has and move across the globe, risking her life for the sake of the gospel and with no regrets? Maybe it's that she experienced God's love, maybe it's that she knows his character. And she trusts in his future salvation, just like Hannah. And so the giving up of life and home and health and security just made sense. I know God. I've experienced his love. I know who he is. I trust that he's going to preserve me to the end. And so she's willing to give it all up. How is the Lord calling you today? to bring your heart and life to him, trusting that he will do what is right and that he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. Let's pray.